Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. excited about talking with you today. And, and by the way of an introduction, um, how we met with, for me um, many years ago, I was out in North Carolina. And what we're going to talk about today with you is the research that you've done, um, not only in and around the area of North Carolina, Huntersville, in that area where there's been a cluster of melanomas. Right. Um, you reached out to me, and uh, you've also been working in conjunction with uh, Susan Wynn, a guest that I had on about Duke Energy and the coal ash spill. And the work that you have done is amazing. I was floored when I first heard from you and your credentials. And I don't want to be the one that always talks. So could you just open up and, and share with people um what to do? Sure. Um, I started researching this about four years ago. I walked into a business meeting of local women in, uh, in the town of Davidson, where I live in North Carolina, which is right near Lake Norman. That's about uh, 25 minutes north of Charlotte, North Carolina, and discovered that one of the hostesses had a daughter who was diagnosed with ocular melanoma. And I said, that's very strange because I, I had my father actually succumb to melanoma 40 years ago. So we talked a little bit and it turned out that there were uh, 18 cases of ocular melanoma in a single town with this uh, eye cancer. And there were 18 in a single town in Huntersville which is fairly small. It's um, the the population is around fifty six thousand, and uh, later when a group of doctors tried to figure out whether there were other cases, several other cases were diagnosed in and around Lake Norman, um, which is the area I live. And then uh, I started to investigate that. I am a journalist, and. Uh, then I discovered that there was a parallel ocular melanoma cancer cluster in Auburn, Alabama, in which uh, 50 people came forward, uh, people who had worked or had been in uh, Lake Norman, um, excuse me, uh, who had 50 people who had lived around Auburn, Alabama, um, and had attended Auburn University in the late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And when the epidemiologists got through with that analysis, they found that at least 36 people had diagnosed ocular melanoma, uh, but for various statistical reasons, they eliminated everybody but 17. And the doctors who were treating these patients were outraged, one of them, uh, Dr. John Mason, uh, who is an ocular oncologist, said there were over 30. 
but because of the way epidemiologists, those are disease detectives, uh, treat cancer clusters, they eliminated people based on the fact that they had moved out of the area, that they were not diagnosed in Auburn, Alabama, and then the exact same thing started to happen in North Carolina. When uh, the North Carolina uh, Division of uh, Health and Human Services, DHHS, they had a, a division called the Occupational and Environmental Epidemiology Branch, or OEEB. Uh, they looked into the cancer cases and declared the 18 normal. Only they were comparing those 18 to, to a similar geographic area over a 20-year period, and all of these people were having ocular mel melanoma in the last uh, some of them started to be diagnosed in 2009, and it went right up to the present day. So with this very disturbing situation where the states and the local authorities were skeptical that anything was wrong, um, I began looking into this. And as a result, I discovered a lot of things about cancer clusters and about possible causes of this that have not been investigated. And the biggest one, the biggest question mark right now is coal ash. And coal ash, of course, now is associated with uh, the deaths of 36 workers in Kingston, Tennessee, uh, who worked on that terrible uh, spill in 2008 of a billion U.S. dollars coal ash, yes. And um, 36, and then, of course, Susan Wind discovered that 260 people in a small town of Mooresville, uh, a population around 39,000, uh, also developed thyroid cancer. So you have the ocular melanoma group uh, on the south part of Lake Norman, and you have the Mooresville group with thyroid cancer, and it's all very close together. So there's a big mystery about what has happened. And the parents of the victims, particularly the ocular melanoma victims, 50% uh, of them uh, develop metastases in the liver. And unfortunately, there is no cure. Once the eye cancer moves to the liver and other organs, the disease is fatal. Well, the parents are mad, and they should be. Uh, the local yeah. government has tried to, um, and I, I'll stop in a minute, the local government in Huntersville has attempted, uh, with some leadership from Natasha Marcus, who's a state senator, uh, to, to get money, uh, along with Jeff Tart, who is also a state senator, uh, to get money to investigate what is wrong in Huntersville, but thus far nothing has been turned up. And the same thing in... Um, in Mooresville, basically Susan Wind was left on her own. She raised privately over $100,000 to have two Duke University scientists try to find the link between the thyroid cancer and coal ash. That money is pretty much used up, and there has not been a, a, a proven link at this point. So that's, that's the update. Well, um, and, and I'll kind of fill in here, you know, um, for listeners, again, we, we came together with the Susan Wynn, so you and I and um, Susan Wynn regarding the Duke Energy situation and their coal ash and the problems in and around Lake Norman. 
Um, it's hard to sing. It's hard to sing uh, your own praises. So I'm going to sing your praises for a minute. And um, by way of introduction, Ariel's last name is Emmett. You are also a PhD. You're principal of Ariel Emmett and Associates. You are a member of the American Society of Journalists and Authors. You're a contributing editor to the Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine, a Fulbright Scholar Kenya from 2018 to 2019, visiting lecturer, research, and writer, also Strathmore University Law School in Nairobi, 2018 to 2019. These are, um, you know, amazing credentials. And one thing I I want to ask you is if you feel, because a lot of times, you know, my guests are, you know, the the moms and they become the heroes and how they fight out and try to get this information out. And they oftentimes feel they're not heard. Do you, with all of your experience and a PhD and the, the writings that you do and, and, your scholarly knowledge, do you feel that in a situation like this, possibly more, that your voice doesn't get heard or that the data wants to be dismissed and by whom? I I think it is a problem. Uh, There have been some articles written locally in the Charlotte Observer on this. Uh, I have uh, written two articles, one for the Melanoma Research Foundation, which still hasn't been published. And I'm working on another for a national magazine. But overall, the national coverage has been small. Uh, and the state, uh, the state public health officials will not even get on, get on the line and talk to you. Uh, they use their public relations person to say there is no such thing as a cancer cluster. And... Uh, Therefore, you know, we, we did what we could. We did a due diligence. We had somebody walk around the area of Huntersville and Hopewell High School where this started. And uh, we couldn't find anything, so we're not going to do anymore. And this is, um, this is a national problem. We have, uh, in 2012, uh, a Dr. Michael Goodman from Emory University conducted a review of the more than 1,000 cancer clusters that are reported every year, he looked into 567 community outbreaks and found among them 428 cancer clusters, of which only 13 were considered to be, and I'm reading some of these statistics from some things I've written, um, he found that only 13 or 72 of them actually showed an increased cancer incidence beyond what was expected. Uh, and only three were linked to a hypothesized cause, and only one was definitely linked. So the problem, I think, one of the problems is that epidemiology is a science of statistics and models, but it does something Mm -hmm. very wrong with, and I've talked to a very smart attorney in Washington who tries some of these cases. His name is Chris Nidell of Nidell and Nace, and he calls it dilution. And what happens is instead of saying, um, the, the typical dialogue is, I've got six kids with leukemia in a town, and uh, is that a cancer cluster? And instead what he should be asking, and what the town should be asking is, I've got three power plants in the town that are spewing substances known to cause childhood leukemia, what should we do about it? 
And so what mm -hmm. the epidemiologists do, based on the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control Guidelines, is they play statistical games with, uh, with modeling these, these clusters, and they compare them to large countywide or multi-county populations. That's called, uh, and what they do is they compare the numerator, that is the numbers of sick people, with people right across an entire county. And as a result of that, or they take a very long time frame, maybe 20 years, and they say, well, it seems normal over a 20-year period. Or for this entire large county area, six kids with leukemia, nah, that's not a cancer cluster. And then they close the investigation. So there's something fundamentally wrong with the way mm -hmm. our country is recognizing the role of pollution in cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's the part where I'm 100% on your, I'm with you on that. And I think <laughs> our country needs to, and I think the media need to be retrained to understand how very mm -hmm. serious this is. So that, I hope um, that I agree that. with you. It, it does help. And um, certainly from, you know, your PhD and, and education um, and the work that you've done, and mine comes from, you know, practical grounds on experience. And I often find myself or Susan Wind or many people that I've interviewed feel the same way because we might not have that PhD, but we're on the ground. We've lived it, we've breathed it, we've known it, and it's that common sense that begins to say to you, this is weird. You know, I can back my way up to Hinckley, California when I started out there in 1991, and I'm observing a population of 600, and they all have a very similar disease pattern. Now, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I was curious. So I lived in LA and I went door to door in my neighborhood yeah. and nobody had a similar disease pattern like they did up in Hinckley and they lived out in the middle of nowhere. So that kind of, you know, got me more curious um, to have somebody tell me on a science side that I know works for the gas company PG&E at the time, say that the two-headed frog in the green water was like the standard or normal. I'm like, okay, see, now I really know something's not right. And, you know, I, I want to back up for a second to that attorney in Washington. Did he say when we were talking about the epidemiological science, it's science and statistics and models, is a Dilution or dilution or would both apply? Did he say dilution? Dilution, as in dilute water. It, it's funny. <laughs> dilution, yeah, but it's also it's it's diluting populations so that the numerator, that is the sick people, against a very large population, suddenly doesn't become. It suddenly is diluted the importance of it because we're not looking just at the town or the place where it's be, where it's happening and trying to find the cause. And that's, okay. that's my big objection to, you know, we have a lot of people in this country getting sick with cancer. How much of this is nature's way of saying it wants to bump off a certain percentage of the population? I can't answer that, but I can say that too many utilities get a free pass and not enough serious investigation of environmental causes is being, can, is, is being done. And as a result, victims, who are clustered in certain areas, and you're trying to deal with this with your community health book, uh, these victims, are, are they're not getting justice. They're not getting environmental justice. Too many African-Americans in certain places are living near toxic waste sites, and uh, the poor 
uh, and the interesting thing about ocular melanoma, of course, is that not only is it a very fatal disease once it metastasizes, but it's also a disease among affluent people. Huntersville is a very affluent middle yes, class town. So and we, we uh, don't always talk about that, but um, I've dealt with that in a case in uh, Beverly Hills, and, and they were uh, very fluent and, and as affected. And I think that's something that we don't always talk about, and, and we need to, uh, all the way around. The effects and impacts that pollution has, it doesn't matter what right. party you belong to or the color of your skin or if you're rich or poor, because it can affect, and it does, and it has all of us. Right. And, and, you know, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say it takes someone like you who comes to visit an area to, to get the media to understand that this is something they, they need to cover much more closely than they do. And that, of course, is another discussion about what's happened to media in our country. But, but basically... That's true. Yeah. We'll have to have that on, on the next podcast. But, no, that is something that that we do need to look at and how that information is being out there. And, you know, we're in this whole social era now where you can read and see all kinds of stuff on Facebook and throughout the internet and different articles. And there's no really consistent information and it gets very, um, very misleading, um, confusing. And then I just think the whole message does get lost. And, you know, we talk about this in my book, Superman's not coming, which is coming out this fall. And in ways how our system was designed, you know, when you go through this for 20 years, you almost begin to think it was designed for us not to find the numbers. You're right. And how we don't monitor migratory pathways. I mean, it makes me think a little, and I could be completely wrong here, and I'm not the scientist, what we're going through with the corona right virus right now the the lack of testing not knowing who has it what has it where they've gone and how if you don't find or those data sets move around you end up missing data sets and that's what science is supposed to be and so it's very frustrating and it takes you it takes the susan it takes me it takes all of us to know superman's not coming they're not going to give the answers for us and how we can step up have these conversations, push doors down, get to politics, change those policies, look at the pollution, and, and get back to, you know, that on the ground, here we are, and we're going to give you the data of what's happening to us, but we continue to disregard it. And it is going to be us and our voice. Now, I, I want to ask you in particular, and we're talking about the ocular melanoma, I'm pretty certain I shared this with you, and if I didn't, I'm going to now. I'm fascinated with all of this um, because of the the coal ash and how it's possibly been spread around in Lake Norman. I want to ask you, in Auburn, Alabama, is there a connection of any coal ash or chemical in and around that community? Yes, that's a very interesting question because... I, I interviewed, while I was still in Africa, uh, working on my research, I interviewed by Skype, um, or maybe it was just a phone call, uh, Ashley McCrary, who is one of the original leaders of the Auburn uh, Ocular Melanoma Group, the Facebook group, again, raising money privately for research. 
And she told me that most of the people who were involved who had gotten ocular melanoma and had connections to Auburn had also lived in Birmingham, Alabama, which has one of the highest uh, uh, rates of coal contamination in water supplies in the country. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. Alabama also has the highest rate of ocular melanoma in the country as a state. It has a much higher percentage of people getting ocular melanoma than the norm. Uh, the norm is, as I said, five, five or six per, um, per million. And in, uh, and in, in Alabama, the, the rate is much higher. I can't recall exactly what it is, but it is at least three times as high. And Ashley believes that it is not just an Auburn problem, but a problem of coal ash contamination in water and land, which is the problem in Mooresville, of course. We have it both in Lake Norman leaking from the Marshall Steam Station, 17 million Mm -hmm. tons in an unlined pit, which is supposed to be excavated now very slowly, unfortunately, and then mixed in with structural fill. And apparently there is some problem with Birmingham as well. That's what Ashley told me. I would like to know more from her about that. Um, but that was why coal ash is, is a suspect, although it has never been linked. I should say this in the interests of, you know, epidemiologists and scientists have looked at this. In terms of causation, no one has been able to link coal ash specifically to ocular melanoma. Uh, what they have had anecdotally are some that obviously radiation exposure And of course, the elements of coal ash are radioactive, and the worst is arsenic, but, you know, radium and and tritium has been dumped into Lake Norman as well. Uh, All coming from the steam plants and the use of coal. Actually, actually, tritium was dumped by another another plant that was a nuclear plant in Huntersville. That's, uh, That's right across the yeah, lake. There's, a, there's another nuclear me. plant called a McGuire in Huntersville, only 4.5 miles from Hopewell High School, where the three girls who started this, unfortunately, right. were diagnosed, uh, went to school. And, uh, you know, again, finding that final link between mm-hmm. a large industrial um, polluter and uh, and uh, individuals who are getting sick is very, very difficult to do. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And it doesn't mean, go ahead, please. I completely agree with you. I I don't mean to cut you off, but I do agree with you. And we we don't see the big picture. And um, you had brought up my community health book and community health book could be a way for us to see the bigger picture. Wait a minute, this is happening in Lake Norman at Mooresville and Huntersville and Auburn, Alabama and Birmingham, because see now those numbers get bigger and that changes your data set, correct? It does. And it gives us a chance to look at what would be a common denominator between these communities in different states with the same cancer. And the story I was gonna tell you years ago I had some farmers contact me from Cameron, Missouri, and they had ocular melanoma eye cancers. And so, which is odd. And they're out, they're farmers out in Cameron, Missouri. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. And so um, one of the people I work with all the time named Bob Bocock kind of did a stakeout 
to in and around the town to watch if any companies or trucks or something was moving into the farms at night. And he waited and waited. And lo and behold, from a cannery, a truck started leaving there at night and going out and spreading waste on the field. Well, this tannery had high levels of hexavalent chromium because that's what they used to get the hide to slide off the, you know, the body, the skeleton of the animal. The carcass. And chromium-6 is associated with these eye cancers. And what was happening is as it dried on the field, it was the dust that was getting into the farmer's eye. So these farmers, again, exposed to a different chemical, chromium-6, had the ocular melanoma. And then now we have the Lake Norman area, and we have Auburn, and you just mentioned now we have Birmingham. So if we can look at a map, and you can start seeing, wait a second, is there a common denominator now with Missouri and Alabama and Louisiana and North Carolina? We could say it is definitely... They've been, and we've shown an exposure pathway, exposed to a chemical or compound that has been associated or known to cause this type of cancer. And I think that's what we're not missing or some reason somebody doesn't want to do that. I think with HIPAA, we can't share data sets. Cancer, you know, we've all tried to create our cancer registries in different states, but that can't be shared. So if we can't share that at a national level and look at it as a whole, I think we continue to miss information that could lead us to, you know, what's happening and how we can help that community and looking at cures or other ways um, and reducing pollution could actually change our health impacts today and moving forward. So I wanted to share with you about what happened in um, Cameron, Missouri. I wasn't sure if I had already told you that story. I I wasn't aware of that, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think the Melanoma Research Foundation has a good idea though. They're developing uh, a national ocular melanoma database called Cure, well, it's the CureOM division of Melanoma Research Foundation. And this is going to be the first database uh, of its kind that will allow both patients and clinicians to enter data throughout the full life cycle of the disease. So they'll be able to say where they were exposed, which is never put into standard cancer registries, uh, not whether they were diagnosed, but where they were exposed, what the patients themselves remembered about where they were and what they possibly ingested or inhaled or were exposed to. Uh, and they will have this dual database, dual registry. It's actually a national registry, and it will allow, hopefully it'll allow epidemiologists who are interested to um, get away from just pure numbers and look at uh, patterns, you know, patterns of exposure, where people are getting sick, why they're getting sick, how they're getting sick, what is the time frame all these things that are really important. So I think that's a good way to go. I think it's a great way to go. And that's what I was hoping to, you know, enhance further. Um, Again, you know, you know, science is really a process of elimination 
And, you know, when I'm in these communities, I start to recognize patterns and log those patterns. And this is precisely what so many of the moms and women throughout this country and in these communities, and yes, sometimes it is men, noticing that similar pattern with their kids and at the school and, you know, going beyond that. And I know that you are going to do um, your research was going to be in some magazines and stuff. Have you run into just recently um, not being able to get those uh, into Mother Jones and some other magazines and I think locations that people would know about this? I think the Mother Jones may end up running it at some point, but they have suspended the publication because they're in the middle of doing uh, a pretty exhaustive COVID coverage. And there yeah. was a decision made that the editors did not want another health story, another right. <laughs> another sad and tragic health story in on top of the, the sort of COVID saturation. So I, I can't say that it's been canceled. Uh, the status to me is unknown at this point. It's, it's been suspended. Right. And I'm hoping my editor is very good and she's trying to get it in. So, um, but it is a frustration. And a lot, of, um, a lot of magazines, even science magazines, the minute you hear the word cancer cluster, they don't want to touch it because the, uh, the doctors and scientists have been so ineffective in trying to pinpoint causes. And that's part of the reason for that is because they don't want to take on utilities and they don't want to take on, you know, there are many possible reasons. You mentioned hexavalent chromium. Uh, it could be mm -hmm. arsenic. It could be high tension power lines, which emit coronas. Right. When they get when they get uh, junk on them, even bird guano um, dust, they start emitting ultraviolet radiation, which damages DNA. And of course, we're all very different. Some people are more resilient. Their DNA doesn't get they, right. you know, they smoke all their lives, and they don't get cancer. And there are others. These the sad part about this particular uh, this OM crisis in both Auburn and in North Carolina is that these are all young girls, which is most are young girls, more than 50%. And that is not the typical demographic for this disease. The, in, what has been known in the past is that people who get OM are generally middle-aged males. And they're usually involved in occupations like arc welding, uh, cooks who are okay. exposed to very high intensity light. So it's, it's a very strange development in this particular disease that we don't really know why but all these young women have been affected the original girls who the three who uh i i know most about because i interviewed their parents and one survivor summer heat is still fighting the disease um you know they were all in their either in their 20s or some in their early 30s and there's another young lady named uh, Jessica Bosemiller who's also fighting the disease, and she has four children. She's in her 30s. And uh, this, is, this is something that needs much more serious attention on the part mm -hmm. of both state and, I mean, the legislators in, our, in North Carolina, it's a, basically a Republican legislature. So it's mm -hmm. very difficult to get money for investigations. And Correct. investigations need to be done, and they need to be done methodically. They need to be, for example, if it's, if it's possible, the soil, the water, or the air, 
or the buildings, there's something in the buildings, you have to look at them all. You can't look at one thing and then say, well, there's no connection. You have to look at everything right. until you find the thing. Anyway, that's... But there, yeah, there's always the thing that they don't want to look at. And Ed and I used to, Ed Masry, who, um, you know, yes, was in the film, Aaron Brockovich, that I was the, the best friend and um, greatest mentor. Certainly, you know, I, I got an entire law degree moving about the country with him in a car. Um, we used to always talk about... Uh, they would set um, OSHA and these agencies, they would test um, a 35-year-old white male, you know, with a chemical and draw a conclusion about what levels you could or couldn't be exposed to, which we always thought was ridiculous because a 35-year-old male isn't an aging, you know, 81-year-old African-American male or a, you know, six-year-old um, boy. And how could we take that number and apply it to all? because each person could respond differently to that level of chemical right. that may be okay for a 35 year old. I don't really honestly know why any chemical that we know as a hazardous compound. Um, and I think that's a bit of an illusion sometimes uh, with communities. They say, well, we can drink it, you know, at five parts per billion. And I'm like, okay, if I could get people at a common sense place to go, you know, if I'm moving to a new town and the headline reads arsenic is tainted with rat poison, I'm not going to call NIH to ask them if it's five parts per billion versus seven parts per billion. At some level, you know, it's a poison and you probably shouldn't be drinking it. But exactly. these numbers give, I think, in some instances, false security to communities. Oh, well, we're below that number, so we're safe. And so I think that there's a lot of policies that have been put in play for CDC and agencies for toxic substances, disease registry, and state cancer registries across the board for these agencies that are quite antiquated, that aren't applicable to the chemicals that are in the environment today, to the numbers of diseases that we're seeing, to the larger numbers of people that we have living in the United States and how we can still rely on that information going forward, which for me makes it all the more important. We have these conversations and we keep pushing to get this information out so we can look at it in the bigger picture and yeah. stop making the disassociation that all of these chemicals and these issues in our environment can't not hurt us, but I think that we're beginning to see that they have. Well, I hope we're beginning to see it. <laughs> Because I, I hope so. Think it's true. I mean, I think there's so much. I had, I visited my doctor about a month ago, and he said there's so much toxic stuff in the environment. He said it's it's kind of a duck and cover. He said all you can do is eat well, eat lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, and wear sunglasses, and stay away from power lines, and, and not you know top of coal ash, and hopefully you'll make it to the next day. So. You know, I don't know if, and I have so many people contacting me, uh, is everybody is fearful, uncertain, terrorized, watching everything that's happening right now with the coronavirus. And I just read some studies about a link with the pollution. Um, a, we're starting to see pollution clearing. They're saying in India, you can see the Himalayas. I live here in L.A. And I've never seen the skies so blue. And you go down the 101 and it's like the mountains are right in your face. Or articles that you're reading about 
now that, um, you know, all the motorboats and stuff aren't going through the canals in Venice, that um, they can see the bottom of the canals. They're actually seeing fish move about. And that in some instances, there's studies of people who lived in polluted areas and, and suffered, you know, pollution issues that could damage kidneys are also having a harder time with this virus. Um, and I, I dare not even, I don't want to say any silver lining because there can't be, this has just been mind blowing to me, uh, and history of what we're going through right now, but that if we can walk away and once we know, even begin to take better care of the environment and the difference that that makes for us in healthier lungs, healthier kidneys, if we're going to be living in a world of where we could have pandemics like this. That the healthier we are, the the more we can fight. That's what true. is your opinion, perception of that? Well, I think you're absolutely correct. I I think that um, that virus in particular is very bad, and one of the reasons it's very bad is that we really know very little about it, and it also, I understand, it mutates about every ten days, um, but from the demographics of the people who are getting sick, many of them are old, correct, and many of them have pre-existing conditions, um, which we know about, diabetes, uh, lupus, all these, all these things, mm-hmm. obesity. Obesity is a huge factor, but we also have young people in their 20s and 30s who are getting very mm-hmm. sick and some dying of this. So it's... It seems to me that we've been given a warning that this pandemic may not be the last that we will see in the next 50 years. I feel that if we don't start doing better work with sustainable energy, with cleaning up the 1,400 unlined coal ash pits around our country. Amazing, uh, correct. Unbelievable. Uh, You know, now in our particular area, Duke is now mandated to clean up the remaining ones, which constitute a hundred million tons of coal ash in unlined pits in our, in just in our state. If we don't start really getting away from coal and moving toward much more sustainable and we, we, we can do it. We've got the wind, we've got the sun, we can figure out the batteries, we can figure out the storage. We can stop mixing coal ash with structural fill and landscape fill and stop spreading it around, leave the coal in the ground and move on. Be, be, you know, be aware that we're living on borrowed time, I think. I mean, if we don't figure this out, you know, our climate is not only changing, our planet is changing. And um, I, I see this as being a very, very important part of the future is is a kind of re- let's take stock of the way we are over respecting industry and under respecting individuals. I think that's what we need to do. I sound like I'm on my soapbox. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I so I I enjoy it, and you know uh, I know listeners will too. But it's really very true, and the very planet in which you know we live upon. We all need the air and the water and and the land to survive and i think that there's just such great pressure at every level from our industrialization that came and hit swiftly into where we are today 
and taking a look at the larger picture. Uh, how do we get here and how do we get out of here into a more sustainable future? And, and I do believe that when we do, and I think that we can, if we'll just look at this, we'll have an, a much healthier society. And I think that's the one thing that's critical and important to every single one of us. I mean, without your health, what is there? I agree. I agree. It's, and I think, I think the other, the other part of this is that because of the population bomb, the, the overpopulation of the world, what's interesting is that some countries, including, I was just reading an article today about Taiwan. It was one of the best, uh, contained the virus very, very quickly by being smart about it. And, uh, I'm mm -hmm. over, but Taiwan has also been a very, uh, very careful about, uh, not only, tracing cases but actually when people get it got off the planes the minute china announced the existence of this virus they were they were monitoring people getting right off the planes and quarantining them and i think that we need to be a lot more proactive don't sit on our laurels and um just keep you know be much more vigilant and caring for our world and um, interestingly, I also read an article that the, the the countries that have done the best job in containing the virus have all been led by women, <laughs> which includes. Which includes See, that's, that's our third podcast that we can do now. Right. <laughs> Angela you know, Merkel, uh, Cinda Hearn, the whole group from uh, Finland and uh, Norway. Right. It's Iceland. It's crazy, but uh, but it's. Well, I think that. You know, they have um, the ability, and women do, and, and we have the children, but, you know, to that, that compassion, that empathy, um, that ability to, you know, not just hear one-sided or go one way, and that they'll take a lot of information in, and they're thoughtful. Uh, there's a whole lot of reasons why I think women intuitively are phenomenal leaders. I have to tell you, in every community I've been involved in, it's been a woman that has said, oh, hell to the no. And for us to believe in ourselves again, that one thing that struck me, and I've said over and over and over again, and I'll never forget, um, standing out in Hinckley, California, is um, somebody said to me, you're not a doctor, you're, you're not a lawyer, you're not a scientist, you know, why should we listen to you? And I'm like, I never thought I had to be any of that to be a human and to tell you what I see and what I know is going on. It's just wrong. And moms do that real well especially if it comes to one of their kids, but that we have to believe in ourselves again and not just think Superman or something is going to come along and fix this for us. I'm, I'm hoping that we're starting to see that's precisely what's not going to happen, but we're still here and we can still make that change. Absolutely. Something that most people may not know about or have forgotten about is something that Rachel Carson said in 1963, right before her death of breast cancer, who was our greatest environmentalist, in my opinion, and wrote the book Silent Springs. Right. And she said, man's attitude towards nature is today critically important simply because we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and destroy nature. But man is a part of nature and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. We're challenged as mankind has never been challenged before to, to prove our maturity and our mastery, not as nature, 
but of ourselves. Incredible. She wrote that in 1963. And here we talk in 2020. And I hope that we will finally look at the challenge before us and to, and to prove our maturity and our mastery of oneself. And I think that's where so much of this lies. And that's where you are. See, so I'm going to call you, you're a badass woman <laughs> because you look at that self and yourself and believe in yourself and find that voice to step out and reach out. And it's amazing. The work you have done is incredible. And I really look forward to um, doing more work with you. And I'm so thrilled that you joined this podcast today. Uh, I know people want to hear what you have to say. And well, I, um, appreciate I want to you. thank you. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled. Thrill, thrilled, and, to, uh, thrilled to talk to you. Well, I'm, it was delightful to have you. And I, listen, I can't wait till you and Susan and I... <laughs> All these women, we get together and we put it together, and I'm telling you. Uh, I, I will never lose my hope. I think that's the worst thing that could happen to any of us. And I do believe for the crisis that we go through in these communities and dealing with the pollution and the setbacks, that we are at a moment where we, as the people, will rise again and we can be a game changer for our future. I will always believe that and I always have the hope that we will do that. I hope so, too. So thank you. I look forward to talking to you really soon and um, keep up your incredible work. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. Okay. All right. We'll speak soon.